0: Those are all the little people, um, it's time for you to, to head out uh, with your mini's leaders, and they're just going to meet around uh, behind the stage here at the back. Um, and for the rest of us, if we could grab your Bibles and turn to Malachi uh, chapter 2. Um, so we're in the, uh, the book of Malachi, which is right at the end of the Old Testament, And what we normally do at the church is typically we take a book of the Bible and we work through it. That's what we like to do at the church, to really hear all that God has to say to us through his word. And currently we're in this series in this book of Malachi. Uh, So Malachi chapter 2. Great. Um, And before we dive into it, let let me pray. Father, as we've just sung, praise you, Lord, that your mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Father, thank you that you are unchanging in your faithfulness to your people, in your great mercy to your people. Help us to see that now this afternoon. And pray that for the minis as well as they gather, pray that they may see more of your glory, of your unchangingness. Please be with our little ones as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. So so we're in Malachi chapter 2, right at the end of chapter 2, so verse 17, and we're going to run through to chapter 3, verse 12. So it's quite a long section uh, today. Um, So let me read it first, and then I'm I'm just going to break it down for us so we can kind of see how it all fits together. So let me read it from end of chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or... Where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widow widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice but do do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. I the Lord do not change so you the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord Almighty. But you ask how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, so it's quite a long passage, as we see this afternoon, but this is how we're going to approach it. Right at the heart of this passage are those key verses that Linda picked up for us as she opened the service. You heard them in verses 6 and 7. I, the Lord, do not change. And then he cries to his people, return to me and I will return to you. Think of that as the mountaintop. So you know when you climb a mountain and you get to the top, you see this amazing view. You can see for miles. It is incredible. It's glorious. The air is fresh. And then going up and going down, that's sort of hard work. It's going to be a bit like that today. Those two verses are like the mountaintop where you get this glorious view of who God is. And that's where we're going to see how God is unchanging in his faithfulness. But then to get there, to climb up, and then to get back down, there are these two disputations that God raises against his people. And what we're going to see in these two disputations are these heart attitudes of the people of God that shows the unfaithfulness of God's people. Two heart attitudes that lead us to pull back from God, to turn away from God, to be disobedient to Him. So, every t- everything today hangs on those two verses. That's the way we're going to see it. And as we go through this journey, what we're going to see is how there is this unchanging, faithful God who calls out a changing, unfaithful people. That is what we're going to see. So, I'm going to see it in these two heart attitudes. Here's the first It's not fair. It's not fair. Have you ever asked God, said to God, cried out to God, God, this isn't fair? I have. When I see Christian family and friends suffering, some in our church family here, when I hear them suffering through physical or mental illness or as they support their loved ones, that doesn't seem fair. And in contrast, when I look at those who don't seem to believe, they don't believe in God, but they seem absolutely fine. Everything's dandy for them, they have no issues at all. I'm like, how is that right, God? That doesn't seem fair. I've questioned it when I've seen friends blacklisted or overlooked at work for their Christian views. When you hear on the news of Christians being fired from their workplace because of their beliefs, that doesn't seem fair. I've questioned it when I see people in authority and power and abuse it and seem to get away with it. How can that be? Where's the justice, God? Why are you silent? See, that is what is on the lips of the Israelites. Do you see that in chapter 2, verse 17? They're saying to God, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. You know what? Evil people not only get away with things, but God seems to even favor them. Where is the God of justice? God doesn't seem to be there. He's not present when there's injustice. I can see see myself asking those questions at times. Can you? See, when you start to believe that God is not fair there is that danger where you will start to drift, where you will start to turn away from him, to be unfaithful to him. That is what is happening here with the Israelites. It's like when I was with a certain mobile phone company. Uh, Let's call them Tree. Um, uh, They kept charging me these uh, extra small charges every month, which I don't think we'd agreed on. Maybe I hadn't read the fine print, but I was getting really annoyed. I was getting charged more than I thought. So each time I called them every month saying, look, this isn't fair. Stop charging me. And what do you think happened? They kept charging me. And before long, what do I do? I cancel my contract. See, that is what is going on. When we start to think that God is being unfair, we're tempted to push away from Him. This doesn't seem right. Now, this is what troubled me about God's response. See, to me, those questions about injustice seem to be fair questions to ask, right? The Bible, God's Word tells us that God is the God of justice. Surely He wants to see these things made right. That is my understanding of who God is. But then God says this, start of verse 17, you have wearied the Lord. And that troubled me. Why would God be wearied wearied of our cries for injustice? Um, Before I got married, I used to have a car. And shamefully, it got towed once. Um, I was (laughs) was with my friends, uh, they, it was, the friend was living in the Korean embassy at the time, so I went over to visit them, and they said, park in this spot, it's fine. And so I, was, I, I parked in it, I trusted them. Uh, and they were, we were kind of hanging out, having dinner, and then they were like, oh look, a car's getting towed. And, then, you know, and I look out the window and go, oh yeah, that's funny, until I realized it was my car. And you're literally watching it get pulled on this tow truck and then driven off, so I ran down the stairs, jumped in a taxi, chased it down, and I got to the pound, and I was like, look, it was a mistake, can you let me, let me off? He like, said, no, you've got to pay the fine. So I had to pay this hefty fine. And the next day, I called the council to the parking department, and I wrote letters, I got the ambassador to write a letter, bombarding them every other day, claiming, look, it's unjust, I I didn't know, this is not fair that you had to charge me this much. It was an innocent accident. And they got sick of seeing my number and my emails pop up. Here was my claim, I was claiming that was unjust, that was unfair. But I was clearly in the wrong, it was a diplomatics-only parking spot. Never leave your car in those, because they will get towed very quickly. But look, as I was meditating on this passage, I realized what God was trying to show me. See, God, of course he knows about all these injustices. Of course he does. He sees and he knows everything. We don't need to tell him about these injustices. He knows. But what he wants his people to do is take a breath, to stop and look at their own hearts. He's saying, look, do you realize how you're treating me? How you treat me with injustice? He wanted them to see the irony of what they were asking. So remember what we've got to with the, the people here in this book of Malachi. These Israelite people were not saying these things about God's injustice from a position of innocence, where they were sitting there thinking, we are unchanging in our goodness and faithfulness to God. No, far from it. We've been seeing this over the past few weeks. They were coming in half-hearted worship, offering kind of the, the worst of their flock to God. We saw last week how they were unfaithful covenant breakers in their marriages and their relationships with other people. And yet they're sitting there asking God for justice. That is the irony. And the thing that really unsettled me was the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that is actually just like me. I am so good at crying out for justice. I'm happily, I'm happily there picketing or tweeting when I see this oppression and injustice going on. I'm like, oh, yeah, come on. We need to sort that out. Bring me to a rally about any sort of injustice. And I'm there. But as soon as somebody calls me out for for injustice, for something I've done against somebody else, when I've treated them unfairly, what do I do? I cry out for mercy. Because I don't want to admit that I've acted unjustly. I don't want to believe that is what I'm actually like. Now let me be clear, there are injustices in the world that are not the result of sins directly that we commit. I'm not saying that every injustice we encounter is directly because of a sin I've committed. But what I am saying is that every sin I commit is an injustice against God and probably most likely against somebody else as well. And that is something that we cannot ignore, and that is something that God cannot ignore. And God wants His people to see, look, it's so easy for you to spot the injustices out there while ignoring the great injustice that you're doing against me, against God, when we offer up half-hearted worship, when we are unfaithful to Him. And the scary thing is, instead of God ignoring those repeated requests, Because he's tired of them, he actually goes, Okay, fine, I'll answer them. You're crying out for injustice? Well, crying out for justice? Well, let me show you what that looks like. It's like a rowdy classroom getting out of hand because the teacher's not there. The headmaster walks in and everyone perks up. Here he comes to deal with the mess. But there seems to be, in this passage, in chapter 3, these two different responses to injustice that God gives. You see the first in verses 1 to 4. God says, that I'm going to send somebody who's going to come and purify and refine the people. That's the language used here. The image that is that of refining precious metals where you heat them up to really high temperature. All the, the horrible stuff, the impure dregs, they rise to the top, which you sift off and then you cool it down and you're left with this beautiful, precious metal. The other image is that of a laundress soap where you take stained clothes and you, you rub them until they're completely cleansed. See, what God is wanting here is to treat that injustice, to purify it. He wants the end result to be glorious so that his people are like gold and silver, beautiful, precious in his eyes, white as snow without stain. That was the whole purpose of that in verse 3. He wants the Levitical priest, the priest there, representing the people that they would be purified so that they would bring the people of God in right worship, worshiping in righteousness, acceptable offerings that are pleasing to God. None of this half-heartedness. None of this unfaithfulness. That is the first way he seems to deal with injustice. He wants to purify and refine his people so they might live in the goodness of God. But then you contrast that with verse 5, where he says, I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers. That word testify is a bit softer in the NIV. Normally it's it's judgment. That is what he's saying. I am coming to judge. Those who are sitting in evil, I will judge. It's like a courtroom scene where God is standing there, the evildoers are in the dock, and he's saying, look, you're judged. You're judged. You do evil deceit. You are an oppressive abuser. You will be judged. Those who do not fear God will be judged. So if you're being unclear up to this point, does God actually judge? Yes, he does. God says, I'm coming to judge. Don't worry about that. Judgment is my job. That is what God is saying. But why does he then have these two different ways of dealing with injustice? Well, because of verse 6. Because I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. See, here is the reality of God. God is just. Yes, he must deal with injustice. He doesn't change in that regard. But yet God is ever faithful to his people. He's made a promise, starting with Abraham, right through Abraham's descendant, Jacob, right through to his covenantal people here in Malachi's time, that God would be their God and they would be my people. And even when they treat him with injustice and complain about it, turn away from him, God says, yeah, I know your hearts, but you know what? Instead of destroying you in judgment like those in verse 5, I'm going to purify you and make you beautiful like verses 2 to 4. And that is because God is unchanging in his faithfulness, in his promise. He's not unfaithful like the people. He's not changing like the people as we've seen throughout the book of Malachi. His I will is I will. And so if chapter 1 reminded us of how God says I have loved you, here in chapter 3 we're reminded that God says I am always faithful. I do not change. You can trust my promise. So let's come back to this question. Is, Is God fair? Yes and no. He's fair and just in how he deals with evil and injustice. We can fully trust him in that. But you know, it's not fair. It's not fair how he deals with his covenantal people because he deals with them with utter undeserved grace. Actually, the it is not fair in our hearts shouldn't be held as an accusation against God, but it should actually be one of amazement and thankfulness to say, God, you wouldn't destroy me, even though I've treated you unjustly all because he does not change. It is not fair that God is so generous and gracious to his people. And as the people hear this prophecy and they wait for this to happen, we can just flick a few pages later and we start to see it happen in the New Testament. As he sends that first messenger, John the Baptist, who comes to prepare the way for the Lord, prepares the way for God to come in flesh, to make paths the, the straight paths for who? for the Lord the messenger of the new covenant for Jesus for Jesus who comes to deal with those injustices not only of the world but more importantly of our own hearts see when it comes to injustice someone must pay somebody always pays it doesn't just disappear and vanish into thin air imagine this if, um, let's stick with fruit pastels I used it last week if I come and stole your fruit pastels uh, if you like them that is an injustice, right? If I stole them, and nicked them off you. And there are two ways you can deal with that. The first way is to sh- sort of shame me in public and say, he stole my fruit pastels and get me to pay for it. Perhaps you might add a bit of interest. I have to give you a few more. But I bear the cost of that. I have to pay for that. Or you show grace and you say, fine, you've stolen them, but I forgive you and you let me keep the fruit pastels. But that means that you bear the cost. You absorb it. See, somebody always has to pay regarding injustice. And that is exactly what Jesus comes to do. That is how God purifies his people and makes them beautiful and clean. The messenger of the covenant comes to pay that cost of our injustice against God. He comes and walks through the furnace of, our trial, of the trials before the Sanhedrin and the Romans. He comes to face injustice himself as he stands in the dock, as the only person to have never have sinned, committed any injustice at all, And yet from there, he goes to the cross for our sake. He faces the embers of God's refining wrath. Takes our unfaithful, unjust hearts upon himself to be nailed to the cross. And through that, he gives us new hearts. His heart that refines and purifies our callous, rebellious hearts to make them beautiful. The great high priest, Jesus, makes a way so that we might be able to offer sacrifices that are holy, and pleasing to God. Do you see now how God deals with injustice? Yes, he will deal with evil rightly, but he deals with his people graciously. So the question then becomes, how do I know then, if I'm a descendant of Jacob, how do I know whether I face judgment or his grace? This is why verses 6 and 7 are so key. Do you see that in verse 7? God says, return to me and I will return to you. Here is God's call to us. Return to me. You know what? John the Baptist, that messenger who prepares the paths, he comes with this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus comes after him. With what message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Those who acknowledge their injustice against God, who see how far they have walked from God and return to him, are his people. Like the prodigal son, Taken all of God's good gifts and run off and squandered it all, living far from him. When he sees what he's done, returns home, trudging back to his father, only to find his father is there waiting for him. Return to me and I will return to you with outstretched arms. Those are God's people. So this afternoon, no matter how far you might have think, I've run from God so far, I've turned away from him so deeply, no matter how unjust you've been to God. Do you know what? The Israelites constantly turn away from God. You see that throughout the, throughout the Bible, but the key is this. God calls you and says, return to me and I will return to you. Some of us sitting here this afternoon might be grappling with some deep sin. Some of you might be sitting here feeling like you're drifting or you've drifted. You're sort of coasting in half-hearted worship. And I want you to, to hear God say to you, look, I don't change. My promise is still true. Return to me and I will return to you. No matter how rubbish you might feel, God is waiting for you. He sent his son for you to purify you and refine you into the likeness of him. And so the call is that confess your sins, repent, and return to God. Perhaps you're here this afternoon and you're sort of investigating Christianity. You you kind of want to know what it's all about. You're not sure about this God person. And perhaps you've got that question in your mind. Things don't seem fair in this world. But God wants you to know that He is going to deal with every evil and injustice this world has ever seen. There is a time coming for that. But by God's grace, might you see the injustice of how we have all treated God? How we've mistreated our creator and our maker. That one day we will have to pay for that injustice. And God calls you return to me, and I will return to you. Is to come and repent and say, God, I'm so sorry. For the way i've treated you please forgive me and see how god pays that injustice with his grace that's the first one that's the first heart attitude it's not fair here's the second one it's not worth it it's not worth it that's kind of looking chapter 3 verses 8 to 12. Um, i used to i used to work in an office somewhere my colleague he once took me to this um this new ramen bar that popped up so if you know what ramen is like japanese noodles and, and a soup broth. It tastes amazing if, if you go to the right place. Um, and he'd been this, to this place and he was adamant that it was so, so good. And we went and we got there, so it's quite new. And you can imagine, new things in London, what happens? There's a craze, everyone's like, ooh. So there's a massive queue. There's 45 minutes to eat some noodles in a, a bowl of soup. I was like, Mate, is it really worth it? Is it really that good? Is it really worth waiting that long for this? Have you ever thought that, and asked that question, is it, is it worth it being a Christian? There seems to be a high cost to being a Christian. Here, specifically, God talks about tithing, giving to God from what we have in terms of our possessions, our finances. There's a cost. Is it worth it? See, you could have used that money elsewhere to better your life, to go on that extra holiday. Is it worth it? Is it worth giving of your resources to God in this way? You look at others around you. I look at some of my friends and it's, they're progressing, as it seems, well with their lives. They eat out a lot more. They take really cool Instagram pics of ramen bars and around the world. They buy cars and they settle into affluent areas and, you, and I sit there wondering, is it, is it worth it? It's like the Israelites here who look around, they've come back from exile back to Jerusalem, they look around and they, and they look at the small temple and the small walls and the few people and, they, and they're asking themselves, is it worth it? And we can feel that in this country as well, can't we? When we look at the stats on Christianity, church buildings closing down, being sold off, numbers dwindling in attendance, and of course, related to that, giving and tithings going down, everything seems to be pointing downwards. Is it worth it? And on top of that, the Israelites seem to be facing socioeconomic pressure from being under Persian rule. Verse 11 seems to imply that they're facing poor harvest with pests devouring their crops. It's like a cost of living crisis was coming for them back then as well, wasn't it? Is it worth it? The key thing is when we start to ask that question, is it worth it? We often ask that question because we see our circumstances and our surroundings. And when we look at that, it makes us forget the true value and worth of what we already have. And that is what is happening to the people here. Where are the people? They're back in the land that God had promised to them. This was the land that God, the unchanging, faithful God, had said, look, this land is yours. This is the land I'm giving you, and I've brought you back here to live in my presence under my blessing. God had given them this land to steward as an inheritance. And God has said back then, as he does now, look, part of that is to tithe. You were to give and tithe as part of the law of God. We see that in Deuteronomy 14. God commands them to give because tithing was a way, there's three reasons. One, it was a way to rejoice and celebrate who God is and thank him for all he's done. It was used to support the Levites and the priests who didn't have any other work, and it was used to provide for the poor. It was part of their worship to acknowledge their thanks to God, of his unchanging faithfulness to fulfill his promise to his people. But here they were now saying, I don't think it's worth it. They had lost sight of verse 6, of the unchanging God. They had lost sight of everything that God had promised to them and they began pulling back in worship of God from the support of those who helped them in worship and for those who are in need in their community. And that is why God says, you're robbing me. God calls out to them. Do you see the way it works? In verse 7, he says, return to me and I will return to you. They ask, how are we to return? And he connects that to their tithing. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? You're robbing me of my tithes because your heart isn't for me, because you're not returning to me. This is where God is so unchanging in his promises. See, he could have just said, okay, that's it, I'm going to cut you off, but he doesn't. He's unchanging and faithful. So he says, verse 10, test me in this. Try me. Go on. Try me and see whether this curse upon you in verse 9 will be lifted. Return to me with your hearts and give wholeheartedly with your hands. Bring that full tithe and just watch what I will do for you. Do you see how he promises in verses 10 to 12 how he's going to pour out unimaginable blessings upon his people? Now, you've got to pick this up. Verse 10 to 12, these aren't just nice material blessings, harvest blessings. But actually, in these verses are contained great covenantal blessings. God is reaffirming his covenant to his people, saying, look, I am unchanging my promise to you. Let me prove it by showing you how I will bless you. Look at verse 10. Bring the whole tide into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Here are the blessings that come down from heaven. If you give your heart to God and in practice with the tithes, watch God fulfill his covenantal promise of blessing, that he will bless his people until there is no longer any need for them, until it's fully sufficient for them, until their stomachs are full. Verse 11, it speaks of the land bearing fruit. It speaks of it being protected from pest and pestilence. Do you see? When Abraham blessed God, he said, He gave him three things. He said, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you people. Here's the second thing He speaks of the land. The land's going to bear fruit, it's going to be protected. God's plan and purpose is that they would be in this land permanently that would forever bear fruit, that would never see decay, no pests and plagues, but fruit and flourishing. A better Eden was to come. And then you see in verse 12, the third thing, the third promise of the nations. Where he speaks of the nations, calling them blessed. People far and wide would come and see God's great blessing upon his people and call it glorious. The nations would come in worship of God. See, the point is this stop robbing God without giving. But instead, lean wholeheartedly and trust to the unchanging God. Because God has promised blessings to you through his covenant. That is what he's going to fulfill. Now, here's an important question, something I need to clarify. I went to a conference way back in the day, a Christian conference. There were 30,000-odd people gathered there in a massive stadium. It was huge. And at the conference, the keeper kept saying, give to God and He will make you rich. He will bless you materially." and the buckets started to come round. Is that what God means here? That is a message that you might get if you go down a YouTube rabbit hole. And it's one that sounds really appealing as we live in this world. Give to God and he will bless you with so much stuff. But this is not a give and get rich theology. See, the careful reading of this shows us that this is actually all about God fulfilling his covenantal promise and his blessings once and for all. That is what verses 10 to 12 show us. And this is not going to be done through another earthly ruler. This is not, not about here on this earth, but by another David, by a greater David. Everything changes as the greater David comes, as Jesus comes, the messenger of the covenant, who comes to fulfill that covenantal promise once and for all. That is what we have to look forward to. So the question, is it worth it? Come back to, that, to me as I stand in that queue with my friend. Man, I was hungry and I was tired. 45 minutes? Was it worth it? And my friend started explaining he started trying to help me picture and a foretaste of what it was going to be like. Oh, the noodles are so crunchy. And then, there's like I don't know, there was nice stuff. It was like broth. I can't remember. It, was, it tasted good. But, but, I, um, but soon, as I walked down that queue, I could smell the broth coming out of the kitchen, wafting through. And I started to sense, actually, it might be worth it. And just like that, Jesus comes to give us a foretaste of what is to come when he comes again blessings from heaven. We see that hinted at as he feeds the 5,000 where he looks up he seeks blessings he prays to his father blessings from heaven in prayer and he feeds the thousands of people until there was no longer any need and there were even 12 baskets fulls left over. We see the promise of the land when Jesus speaks of his kingdom not being of this world there is a greater kingdom coming that he's calling his people to a permanent kingdom with an inheritance that does not perish, spoil or fade. And We see the nations as he expands his ministry beyond the Jewish people, as he reaches out to the Gentiles. And this all pivots and points to all that Jesus had come to do as he came to deal with that injustice in our hearts, as he came to fulfill that covenantal promise at the cross and at the tomb. Where Jesus comes to show us once and for all that God does not change that he is ever faithful to his covenant, even to death on a cross to ensure that his people's injustice would be paid for and that they would be brought into ultimate and eternal blessing with God in his kingdom. Is it worth it to commit to God and to give to him? It is so, so worth it because the Lord who does not change has promised that he will, he will be forever faithful to us if we return to him. Because the Lord who does not change promises a new life, an inheritance that is beyond anything this world can offer. To an inheritance that does not perish, spoil or fade, and where there will be no more pain and pestilence, no more sickness and sorrow. Instead, we'll be blessed beyond our imagination, fully satisfied without ever needing or wanting more, filled with joy that we stand in the presence of God, in eternity. That is what we have in store for those who return to the Lord. Now, as we have this future hope, there are, there are some implications for us today. We're not just supposed to just sit there waiting for this to come. And here are two things, that, practical things to think about in terms of our, our giving. The first is to give by faith. In Christ now, the law is fulfilled. So in the New Testament, I don't think there's this mandate to tithe as there was in the Old Testament. Woohoo! But before you cancel your direct debits and stuff, the the principle still applies. Return to God, and as your hearts draw near to him, a right response of faith is to acknowledge all that God has blessed us with in this life and the life to come, to give cheerfully to the God who has lavished his eternal blessings upon us. That Old Testament paradigm that I explained earlier, of worship and thanksgiving to God, of ministry support and giving to those in need, those are things that we still continue to see in the early church throughout the New Testament. So if you aren't already, then would you consider giving in faith? Would you, would you consider giving in thanksgiving to God for all He's done for you? Would you consider giving to support the ministries to see God's kingdom continue to grow? Would you consider giving support for those who are in need? And if you have ideas about how to do that well, I'd, we'd love to hear them from you in different ways that we can give. But give by faith. The second thing is this, is, is to lean into God as you give. Lean into him as you give. Trust in his unchanging faithfulness. Now in terms of how much you give, there's freedom, there's, it's a wisdom call. The, the Old Testament figure is a tenth. And that's not mandatory, I don't think. But what I can say is this. Just take the principles of verse 10 that we see here. Lean into him in trust. And you will see, as we live through this life, just how generous God is. Not in terms of just his eternal blessings, but in how he provides all that we need. Not all we want, but all that we need. Here are some promises from the New Testament. Matthew 6. Seek ye first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you in terms of what you need. Philippians 4.19, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ. I know a fair few older Christians and it's amazing the number of times they've told me how they committed in giving to God and that they found that the Lord was faithful and generous just as he promises. They always had everything that they needed at the right time. I've encountered that in my own life. God has always provided everything that we needed at the right time. Because he is unchanging in his faithfulness to his people. Like we've, we've looked at a lot of stuff here. I know there was a lot of stuff in these verses, but here's the crux of it all. Here's what I want you to remember. You sort of wish I said this at the start, so you could have. Anyway, here's the stuff you, I want you to remember God says, I, the Lord, do not change. Return to me, and I will return to you. Remember that God is unchanging in his faithfulness. Let's remember how God does deal with injustice with judgment, or with, for evil with judgment. But he also deals with injustice against him with grace for his people. And so let's return to him so that we might know of his grace. And let's not rob God. Let's see how generous he is in fulfilling his covenant promises in Christ Jesus to know how blessed we are, how rich we are because all that Christ has done. And so let's return to him, give to him, and know of his wonderful generosity to us. And may all of this bring us to worship our unchanging God, not like the people here in Malachi, but wholeheartedly and faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, these are some hard things that that you speak of in your word. But Father, pray that your spirit would help us and convict us and challenge us where we need to be challenged. Father, pray that we would see of the injustice in our own hearts against you. Help us to confess those and come before you and return to you and hear your promise of your unchanging faithfulness to your people to know that you return to us. Father, for those who are facing evil and injustice in their lives, Father, may they be comforted to know that you will deal with that injustice rightly because you are God of justice. And Father, in our giving, please help us to see your generosity of how you've blessed us in abundance through Christ Jesus. And with that, fuel us and encourage us to give to you, to see You, your glory made known, to see um, people who are, who are in need helped but above all else, so that we might return to you with our hearts and worship you wholeheartedly and in faithfulness. And we pray this all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.